Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Good morning and welcome everyone. My name is Jessica Bissett and I'm the Director of Leadership Programs at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. Some of the congressional staffers in the audience have traveled on official delegations to China with me or my colleague John Lowett, who is here today as well, albeit in the background. It's great to see so many congressional staff joining us. You and the senators and representatives you serve are important to the National Committee, and the National Committee wants to be your educational resource on China. That's why we've established this monthly briefing series to bring you expert perspectives on key issues impacting U.S.-China relations. Today's briefing will examine the potential of a feminist foreign policy as another tool in the diplomacy toolkit to help achieve America's most pressing national and economic security interests, especially as it relates to the U.S.-China relationship. Our goal is for you to walk away with practical steps for operationalizing a feminist foreign policy that you can take back to your bosses and colleagues. This discussion is especially important as we adapt to a new era of competition between the United States and China. And it's timely. 25 years ago this month, officials and activists from 189 countries gathered in Beijing for the United Nations Fourth World Conference on Women. This is where the Beijing Declaration and the Platform for Action, considered to be the most comprehensive global policy framework for the rights of women, was adopted. Ever since, women have used the Beijing platform to make gains in legal rights, health, and education. We've indeed taken some steps forward. In 2014, Sweden became the first country to implement a feminist foreign policy. Since then, Norway, Canada, France, Luxembourg, and most recently Mexico have all followed suit with a feminist foreign or development policy. But clearly, significant work remains to be done especially in the economic, political, and security sectors. For example, only two women have ever served as chief negotiators <laughs> of a peace agreement during the two decades since the UN Security Council recognized the importance of women's contributions to peace building and security. Studies have shown that when women are at the table during peacekeeping negotiations, peace is proven to last longer. This matters because according to the experts you will hear from today, Gender equity and inclusion are firmly tied to both hard and soft power. Fully implementing a feminist foreign policy would bring a different energy and perspective to bear on solving some of the most significant transnational issues of our time, including climate change, peacekeeping, and global pandemics, all issues that also necessitate U.S.-China cooperation. In fact, linking gender equity and inclusion to our national and economic security is such an important and timely topic that we've opened up this congressional staff briefing to our broader National Committee audience. And we're pleased all of you are here with us today as well. Now on to our experts. You have their bios, so I'll introduce them ever so briefly here to preserve our discussion time. Stephanie Foster is a founding partner of SMASH Strategies. From 2012 to 2017, Stephanie served in the US Department of State both at the U.S. Embassy Kabul and in the Secretary's Office of Global Women's Issues. She has decades of experience working at the intersection of diplomacy, development, and gender. 
Sarah Kemp serves as Merck's Executive Director for Asia Pacific and China Government Relations and Policy Strategy Initiatives. But today she is joining us in her personal capacity, drawing on her long experience in the US government. While in the public sector, she served as the Deputy Undersecretary for the International Trade Administration at the Department of Commerce. Prior to her time in DC, she was the Minister Counselor for Commercial Affairs at the US Embassy Beijing. As a career foreign commercial service officer, she served as the country manager in China and Vietnam and had multiple postings in Beijing, Hong Kong, and Bangkok. Wen Chi Yu is a non-resident research fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School's Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation. She served on staff at the State Department's Secretary's Office of Global Women's Issues from 2009 to 2013 and on the Congressional Executive Commission on China from 2008 to 9. She has worked at various nonprofits and in the private sector. We are also thrilled to count her as a member of the National Committee. Moving on quickly to the run of show, each of our speakers will speak for about eight minutes. Stephanie will lay out the underlying framework for a feminist foreign policy, and Sarah and Wenchi will bring it into focus for the US-China relationship, with Sarah covering trade and Wenchi focusing on diplomacy and technology policy. We will then have a discussion among our experts and leave ample time for audience Q&A. Now I'd like to turn it over to Stephanie Foster for her remarks. Stephanie, thanks so much for being with us this morning. Of course, I'm very happy to be with you all today and happy to be with um, my panelists and thank you very much to the National Committee for hosting this important discussion. Um, I am going to talk a little bit about what this feminist foreign policy thing is um, because I know it's, it's an interesting and intriguing title, but I think uh, really engaging uh, for the discussion is what does it mean? Uh, how are we looking at foreign policy in a different way that moves really beyond focusing on women's leadership, which is critically important. I think we're at a point where now we're looking at how do we go beyond ensuring there's a more diverse group of people who represent the United States or any other country in diplomacy, development, and defense to looking at how we then make policy that's really reflective of what's going on in the world and using a gender analysis tool to ensure that those policies uh, that we all make on behalf of our countries, in my case, the United States, um, are reflective of really what's happening on the ground. So feminist foreign policy is, is a way for us to make look at who makes decisions, who are the people uh, who are making the decisions, who sits at the table, uh, both in Washington, D.C. and at embassies around the globe. How are those policies that get made uh, made? What, how are they created? What's the process that's used? Is it inclusive? Do we talk to people outside the bubble, outside the people we normally talk to in diplomacy, uh, people who are actually impacted by our foreign policy and national security policy? And then what policies do we create? Uh, do we create policies that are actually reflective, again, of what's going on in the ground? And by that, I'm going to come back in a bit and talk about the importance for gender analysis, throughout uh, foreign policy and national security decision making so that we all understand as these policies get made what the impact is on both men and women, boys and girls. So basically uh, everyone understanding that there is a differential impact and differential lives that get led uh, globally by, by different uh, sectors of the population. So really feminist foreign policy is a, integrates critically the goal of gender equality into our national security and foreign policy decision making. 
it's based on the idea that we need to embed that in, in the way we think about foreign policy. We need to understand uh, that there's an importance put on stability, peace, and security, of course, via the way foreign policy works around the world, but that we can't do that if we're ignoring, in most cases, over 51% of the population, the way that the populate that population um, lives their lives, the way that they are impacted by what goes on in the world. The idea of feminist foreign policy is to bring in women's voices into this decision-making, these decision-making processes across the globe, whether at the State Department or at uh, a peace table, or really even in meetings that occur as decision-makers and policymakers are engaging uh, around what's going on in a country. It brings in those voices and those perspectives, as well as embedding, as I said, a gender analysis into foreign policy and national security decision-making. And so when I say that, um, I wanna talk a little bit about what a gender analysis is, um, because I think it's a really important tool to add to the toolbox. As Jessica said, we are talking about another way to look at issues and to look at the challenges we face, there are many, many analyses and lenses that get and should be used uh, as we develop our policies, as we implement them, as we engage with, our, uh, with other countries, as we engage with multilateral organizations. There are a lot of ways that people who are engaged in this every day look at policy, and they should. They should use whatever types of analyses help them to make better decisions. But a gender analysis is really important because it helps bring in the perspective of looking at how policies impact the entire population. It's another way to broaden the lens, essentially. By bringing a gender lens into this uh, policymaking process, it broadens really the type of information that policymakers have available to them. And so we really are looking at, through the idea of feminist foreign policy, and gender analysis, what kind of information is brought into the process? For example, if you're thinking and working on climate change, it's important to know that 14 times, women are 14 times more likely to be climate refugees uh, than men. That has an impact on the way that we think about developing climate policy. Or if you're thinking about uh, CVE, uh, countering violent extremism, thinking about the fact that we know a certain percentage albeit small, but 10 to 15% usually, of foreign fighters uh, in a lot of these uh, organizations are women. What does that mean? Are there different ways then to intervene to really try to stop uh, people's engagement and decisions to join those kind of organizations? So I think we really need to think about the role of women and gender analysis as we're developing policies. So the last thing I'll say before I turn it over uh, to my colleagues on the panel is that this really builds on work that's been done over many years. And so as Jessica mentioned, really this started with the Beijing platform uh, in a lot of ways. That was a place that brought together a lot of women's rights activists and feminists around the world who've been working for years. Not, it's not as though Beijing was the first time this was ever talked about, but it, it is considered the first uh, really broad declaration and platform for action that's comprehensive and it deals with a lot of issues around how uh, governments and civil society and the private sector should address uh, the issues that are faced by, again, half the population. 
Uh, building on that, there has been work obviously also uh, through the UN Security Council resolutions addressing women, peace, and security, starting with UN Security Council Resolution 1325. Those are really focused, again, on a broad sense of the importance of gender analysis and women's voices, bringing women's voices to the table in peace processes and beyond. But I think then building on those, uh, both of those things, and the general work that's been done across the globe to address the issues around uh, encouraging women's leadership, uh, trying to figure out new ways of solving problems, uh, we've come to a point where there's been, again, starting with Sweden, uh, efforts by governments and multilateral institutions like the UN to really focus on how to develop policies that are more inclusive, policies that bring, in, bring this information to bear. Uh, on what we do. I want to I also say, because often I'm asked, you know, is this sort of a pacifist foreign policy? Is this really all about soft power and is feminist foreign policy um, about avoiding conflict at all costs? And I would say this, first of all, there are many people who say they're, they're feminists and who are engaged in foreign policy. I don't want, I'm not trying to speak for everyone. <laughs> so from my view though, of course I think part of what feminist foreign policy is, is about understanding that diplomacy is critical. We need to rebalance the way we think about diplomacy, development, and defense, and see that diplomacy is our first line of uh, you know, engagement uh, in conflict resolution. But this is in no way a policy that says we should never intervene, that we should never engage, if necessary, uh, in armed conflict. Uh, it's certainly, from our view and from the view of uh, my co-authors on the paper are what we should do after we've exhausted our diplomatic options. Uh, but this is not a policy that is all about um, soft, only about soft power. Um, and it's certainly not, at least from my perspective, a policy that says uh, we're about pacifism. It's about bringing in information and uh, analysis into the foreign policy and national security decision-making sphere that really helps those decisions be more effective that helps us have decisions that actually lead to more stability, security, and peace um, by undergirding those decisions with information about the impact that they will have on everybody uh, and taking in information from people in the field who have an ha will be impacted by what we do. So I know there are gonna be questions, uh, which of course, happy to talk about later, um, but I am gonna turn the floor back to Jessica and then on to um, my next colleague. Great, thank you so much, Stephanie, for that wonderful foundation. Um, Sarah, let's turn to you and get into some of the specifics surrounding trade. Sure, so just to pick up on what Stephanie is talking about, obviously there's a direct connection between gender equality and national security, but when I think about a feminist foreign policy, what it means for me is really about taking a holistic approach that uses data to avoid unintended consequences. So what do I mean by avoid unintended consequences? I wanna use an example. So um, not involving women in a labor force leaves vast untapped market potential out of the market. And in countries where the labor force is shrinking, that becomes even more important. And I would posit you just need to look at Japan and look at Abe women of economic policies uh, as an example. But in order for there to even be policies, there has to be the data that looks holistically across the economy. Uh, in, indeed, including women in the economy 
is hugely important. There was a recent McKinsey report that came out that said advancing women's equity in national economies could add $12 trillion to global growth. And yet the World Economic Forum's recent report on the gender gap shows that only 55% of women are engaged in the labor market as opposed to 78% for men. So my personal top five facts, why we need to ensure that we don't have biases that cause unintended consequences when it comes to including women in business are one, in the US, women-owned businesses generated $1.8 trillion every year. 40% of US businesses are women-owned. Only 12% of those export, and that comes, uh, I'm gonna touch upon that later when I talk about what Canada's been doing. Uh, last year or before COVID, every single day, women started 1,821 new businesses, Private tech companies led by women achieve a 35% higher return on investment than those led by men. And in a review of the top 353 Fortune 500 companies by Catalyst, which is a nonprofit, it showed that women that had high represent, uh, companies that had high representations of women in their senior leadership had a 35% higher return on equity and a 34% higher total shareholder return than male-dominated firms. Um, so clearly there's an impact. Um, but what does it mean to talk about, since we're talking about foreign trade, uh, foreign policy, I wanna talk about trade policy. And for that, I wanna use Canada and what Canada has been doing as an example before I get to talk about China. So I'm gonna put some assumptions on the table. I My assumptions are countries that have an open international trade tend to grow faster, are innovative, more product, have higher productivity, um, open trade benefits, lower income households by offering consumers more affordable goods and services, and that integrating into a world economy through trade and a, having a global value chain helps drive economic growth and reduce poverty. I will put a huge caveat. This assumes that all countries are playing by the same rule. So I'm just gonna put that on and then put that away. Um, so what was very interesting to me was how Canada looked at this. What Canada does, it did is they looked at how trade impacted men and women differently. And they found that because women are overrepresented in lower growth, lower wage industries like retail, uh, travel, food services, and that men are, are more likely to be in manufacturing or resource extraction, trade policies had different impacts on men and women, and depending on the sector they were employed in. And as a result, uh, they were impacted differently because free trade agreements impact different sectors differently. So for the first time, what Canada did is they took a gender uh, view or gender lens and looked at what was the impact of trade agreements on women. Um, and as a result, some of the things they did is they ended up in uh, the most recent negotiations putting a gender chapter in their free trade agreements uh, to address some of the challenges and to intentionally promote women exporting. Um, their research showed that women were not participating in exporting and that women-owned businesses were smaller in size. So the driving reasons of why were women-owned companies are smaller, the sectors that they are concentrated in Women lacked access to networks, mentors, information, finance, um, e-commerce. Um, in fact, 
Women-owned businesses are less likely compared to those owned by men to seek loans or outside investment, but they're more likely to have their loan application, applications rejected on the grounds of insufficient collateral. There's also issues on time constraints. In many countries, women must balance business and family more than men. And then uh, they also found that there was an intersection with violence and harassment and that some women may encounter harassment when traveling outside of their countries. And this impacts their ability and willingness to participate in international fora. Um, so why, why do we care? Why is this important? Why, why should governments spend time thinking about why their small and medium-sized companies export? Well, the evidence shows that when companies export, they are more productive, they grow larger, they have higher growth and revenues, they're more resilient to sh market shocks, they hire more people, including women and other diverse population groups, they pay higher wages, uh, they invest more in R&D, and they invest more in employing tra training. So there's this huge benefit if we can get more women-owned businesses to export, not only to those businesses, but to sort of the economic society as a whole. So again, what Ch Canada did, which is the first time I had seen this when I was working in trade, was they had uh, a chapter on gender to address some of these challenges. And it, it lays out things like encouraging capacity building, promoting financial inclusion and access to finance for women who are exporting, advancing women leadership, including advancing women on corporate boards, uh, conducting gender-based analysis, so going back to what Stephanie said about having that data, and then sharing methods and procedures for once you collect this data, how do you use these indicators? How do you use these analysis to talk about trade policy? And I think that's very impactful. Um, I know we're here to talk about China, so I'm going to turn, ever, turn now to, to China, but I wanted to put the Canada example out there of what some countries are doing and what is possible. Um, my experience as a diplomat, uh, I did six of my eight tours in Asia, many of them in Hong Kong and China. And from my experience, China was the place where I experienced the least sexism. I found that the respect that I gained was based on my title, as opposed with my US colleagues and in the US where I might've had the title, but that was the entry point and then I had to prove myself. Uh, I can remember as a junior foreign service officer watching Minister Wu Yi negotiate uh, with then with Secretary Brown, Secretary of Commerce Ron Brown. She was tough, she was disarming, she was really, she really connected with Secretary Brown, her counterpart, and she knew her brief. And I remember being completely impressed with how she was able to have a very tough conversation in a very graceful way. Um, and I think that sort of embodies some of what I think this is about. In life, it's not what you say, it's how you say it, right? So how could a foreign, foreign, feminist foreign policy create common ground in the US-China relationship? I, I think it would allow, as Stephanie said, allows for more divergent voices to be heard, those for decoupling and those for engagement, so we can get at the underlying interest in issues that prevent trust between our two countries. Uh, it would focus on things that impact people's daily lives, you know, clean health, clean water, air, food, um, health of a population, having everyone involved in the economy. When I was Minister Counsel for Commercial Affairs, I challenged the team to look for areas of what I called US-China shared prosperity, looking for pain points in China, for example, bad air, you know, air pollution, soil um, issues, and how could we use US products and services to address them? 
But it's not just a 77. It's not just in sort of the soft areas, right? It was across all industries. And I would argue to, to Stephanie's point, how cool would it be if we had more women in the six party talks? What would that do to change the dynamic of the, the, the six party talks with North Korea? I don't know, just something to throw out there. But as for recommendations for a feminist trade policy, again, what Stephanie said, analyzing gender impacts. And I would say you could look at how the World Bank does it or how MCC does it. Um, setting targets for public, public procurement for women-owned businesses, encouraging board participation in the economy. When I was in, was in Beijing and in Vietnam, I set up um, the, the chapter for women corporate directors, which is about tr providing training to give women the skill set so they can actively participate and be considered for corporate boards. Um, looking at what Canada does, has done on FTAs in terms of how does a gender lens, how do we look at trade and how it impacts women. And then support uh, for the investment of the United Nations um, Convention on Climate Change, which also encourages women's participation in leadership and on boards. And then specific question, uh, specific recommendations for how we reset US-China relations using a feminist policy lens. I would say focus on connecting women-owned, small, medium-sized uh, enterprises in both countries and what trade measures can both countries take to do that. Um, start with mayors and governors of both countries. Um, most of the mayors in China are women, something like 500 out of the 528 are women, and their brief includes healthcare, um, climate, sort of the things that, in, that impact daily needs. So how cool would it be if we had a group of mayors from both countries together to talk about what are the best practices of dealing with COVID? All mayors had to deal with that. Is there a way we can use that kind of fora and those kind of topics to again, build trust? Um, or establish a group of US and China experts to look at infectious diseases and how collaboratively could we look at third countries? If US and China are the superpowers, what is our responsibility and how could we work together in addressing some of, some of these challenges in Latin America or Africa? I would also say uh, restart and encourage scientific and technical exchanges, whether that's the space discussions or what the National Science Foundation is doing. What I found is that we were most impactful when we were able to be more technical. Um, so all of our discussions on IP, for example, when we could be technical and where there was an aligned interest, it's in China's interest, for example, to have a strong IP because they want their companies to compete internationally. So they first have to compete domestically. But where can you find those areas of, of what I call shared prosperities that also have a technical intersection so it isn't politicized? So um, I'll stop there. And I think I'm handing it over to Wenchi now to talk more about another area, about more uh, security, I think. Thank you, Sarah, and thank you, Stephanie, uh, for laying ground the framework to think about um, what does it mean for gender integration um, into our foreign policy. And so I am actually going to look at specifically how it looks like when we say we're integrating gender and women into our thinking and doing in our foreign policy. Um, and so I'll, I'll give a quick review of, you know, what we've been doing since Beijing uh, 
conference in 1995, 25 years ago. Some of the initiatives, bipartisan, you know, from both um, administrations uh, led by both Republicans and Democrats, and specifically, you know, what it looks like in our um, foreign policy and diplomatic initiatives. Um, since I know that many people, uh, listeners or, or viewers today, um, are actually, you know, involved in whether it's congressional or um, in your daily job, something related to foreign policy uh, and diplomacy. So quickly, um, yes, in 1995, uh, when the UN uh, Women's Conference took place in Beijing, and after that, um, I think the US and around the world governments realized, you know, how much desire there was to actually engage and discuss uh, various issues related to women. So uh, at that time, President Clinton um, created the White House Interagency Council on Women. Um, know the name at that time was Interagency Council on Women. So it was a mechanism um, directed from the White House with all federal agencies to look at how can we integrate women into what you're doing, policymaking and um, uh, execution. Um, and in the State Department, they created a position um, that directly reports to uh, Secretary of State, Senior uh, Coordinator for International Women's Issues. Um, and so they also created all kinds of diplomatic initiatives, um, you know, to support democracy movements, um, to be part of peace negotiation um, processes, as well as a lot of um, civil society and political participation type of work. Um, and moving on to the Bush administration, um, they had a little bit different approach. Um, they did not continue sort of the White House Interagency Council on Women. Um, however, um, whether it's Mrs. Bush sitting in the White House, um, who personally took on a lot of women and health initiatives. So HIV AIDS, especially in Africa, through PEPFAR funding, um, working closely with the State Department and USAID, um, really have, you know, I would say drawn the global attention to this issue and putting money where um, it should be. Um, Mrs. Bush also took on, you know, human rights issues like Burma, um, supporting women's rights, and of course, the Afghan women. Um, at that time, that was when our country um, really, you know, had a, uh, started this war with Afghanistan and what we saw on TV, the images of uh, women in Afghanistan, I think, you know, basically um, um, really garner uh, global attention. Um, so that was during the Bush administration and, you know, obviously Secretary uh, Rice also started the International Women of Courage Award that they recognize uh, courageous women around the world every year. Um, and then in the Obama administration, um, not only, um, you know, he appointed uh, Secretary, Secretary Clinton as the first female, uh, uh, sorry, as the, as the Secretary of State, but also uh, appointed and created the very first position um, to work on global women's issues, ambassador for global women's issues. 
Um, and again, you know, sort of consolidated different offices within the State Department. So um, there's a very focused effort to integrate gender into um, our foreign policy and diplomacy. And then, you know, moving on to the Trump administration, um, there is a Women's Global Development and Prosperity Initiative. So I ran this down because I think it's important for everyone to recognize, um, you know, integrating gender and women is not a partisan issue. We've seen um, both parties really taking on this issue. It may look differently, um, but certainly, you know, it is to the core of our U.S. interests, and that's why we're seeing it being implemented and carried out um, in, in both, uh, I would say, Republican as well as Democratic uh, administrations. Um, but the evolution of thinking on women and gender in our foreign policy, I think, has also been really interesting. So um, early on, you know, a lot of people think about sort of working on women's issues sort of more, okay, seeing women as victims need protection, right? Violence against women um, and, you know, women and children are the ones that are most affected and need most protection uh, during conflicts. Um, two, later thinking, which is more, okay, women are drivers of change. Women are agents of economic de uh, development. Women are entrepreneurs. Women are political leaders, civil society leaders. So the agency is different. Um, and the conversation discussion also moved from focusing on women as a group to actual gender integration in everything we do. Um, and hence, you know, Stephanie articulated really, really well uh, in the beginning sort of how we are thinking about it right now. Um, and, you know, as Sarah talked about sort of focusing on the trade um, and gender uh, statistical, I would say, uh, analysis. Now, um, what does it mean in US-China? Also, I would, I'm just going to share some concrete examples. And I'm going to use um, during Secretary uh, Clinton's time, because that's when I served uh, in the government. It does not mean um, you know, it, the gender or women initiatives are not happening in, or did not happen in other um, times. Uh, the first trip, um, if some of you remember, especially pay attention to China, the very, very first foreign trip uh, Secretary Clinton took was to East Asia. And during her stop in Beijing, and I remember really well, um, there was this request from the Secretary's office um, to actually convene a group of women's rights advocates in China. Because we always know human rights issues, um, we don't see eye to eye with China on a lot of the human rights issues. And um, sometimes hitting them directly on human rights issues on their in their territory is not most welcome. Um, so we use women's rights um, as a way to engage with you know, women's uh, lawyers, interest, uh, public interest lawyers, as well as um, a lot of the, uh, the advocates that maybe the Chinese authorities don't like, but, you know, in some way is to show the U.S. a support for those courageous women. Um, that's in, you know, in practice how it looks like. Um, and during the four years of her time, we actually, I remember very well, 
Um, in 2010, uh, during the US-China Security and Economic Dialogue, and Sarah will remember, it's an annual sort of you know, entourage between two sides coming together to talk about big security and economic issues. Um, and we uh, were part of it in Beijing. And during that time, um, there was a discussion about, you know, if the two countries can actually find another venue for engagement, which is people to people, because there's so much desire to engage uh, beyond just hard security and economic and trade issues. Um, so what we were seeing was at that time, uh, it was led in China by Liu Yandong, uh, their most senior uh, female political leader who happens to um, lead a lot of um, health education, sports, culture, um, and related issues. And so in 2011, uh, during the launch of the People to People Dialogue, um, we also included women uh, as part of the dialogue. And um, you know, the two countries were able to come together um, and talk about work and family issues, work, women and employment issues, uh, domestic violence issue, which is um, a topic that China actually wanted to talk about and wanted to learn you know, from the US how the US course um, and police um, really deal with those issues. Um, so I'm using those examples as a way to say that, okay, you know, if you include women and gender um, in your foreign policy and diplomacy, it's a very, very useful tool um, for engagement. And, and it's not just, as Stephanie said, it's not just for soft issues. You can use that to talk about really hard human rights issues. Um, for example, what's happening now in Xinjiang, right? Or in the past, uh, China's forced uh, population um, uh, policy um, has always been, I would say, a, a contentious issue between uh, US and China because we believe in a different set of value uh, than you know, what they were doing at that time. Um, I think we have very little time left. Um, I'm just gonna, you know, point out last a, a few things that, um, you know, lay it out there. I don't have any answer, you know, not that we're doing anything right now to address it, but look at uh, currently, I would say in, in, in our government right now, who are the core decision makers on Asia or US China? Uh, two of the largest countries in the world have consequential impact on the whole world. Um, but the key decision makers right now uh, in, in our government, um, I think they all kind of look the same. Um, and so there's no scientific, I would say, um, evidence to say anything, but I think it does lead to certain style of dealing with uh, right now. And so it's a different kind of energy, I would say. Um, and then if you look at in Washington, D.C., in the, in the world where I live in, um, you know, people who work on public policy issues or who represent companies or nonprofit organizations working on public policy issues uh, or, or lobbying, uh, doing government relations, the majority of them are also male men. Um, and women tend to focus on nonprofits um, or you know, philanthropy doing really nice things. Um, I think that, that also says a lot about sort of, you know, when we look at holistically, how we think about you know, foreign policy, national security, 
Um, and I don't want to say soft power, but I, I actually like Amory Slaughter's term, which is smart power. Um, it's a much sort of comprehensive way to look at the tools uh, that U.S. can actually uh, deploy. I think I'm going to stop there. Great. We're, we're right on time in terms of the schedule. So thank you, Wenchi. I think I want to kind of jump back to Stephanie. First of all, thank you to the three of you. Um, great fodder for us to work with for the rest of the time. Um, Stephanie, you know, I mentioned at the beginning a few countries that have implemented a, for, a feminist or a development foreign policy. Um, and I know you've done a ton of work in this area. Um, what have we seen in terms of impact of feminist foreign policies in these countries? Could you talk a little bit more about that? Um, and then additionally, um, Sarah, I would turn to you to comment as well. And you talked a lot about Canada and what they've done. Our neighbors to the north, we have a lot in common, also a lot of differences. We're a major world power. They're a middle, middle power, so to speak. What's holding us back from doing something similar? So I'll start with that. Sure, I'll start. I mean, I, I will say, so Sweden was the first country to formally adopt a feminist foreign policy 2014. So it's been six years. Um, so just to think we have a six year window to really look at in terms of what the impact has been. Um, I'm, I wanna say a little bit about Sweden, a little bit about Canada, which adopted a feminist development policy uh, in 2017, and then France in 2019. Um, really, what I think we've seen from Sweden, and this is really very anecdotal, but in talking to a lot of Swedish diplomats here in Washington, and then also through just engaging with them on you know, various calls and meetings, they talk about uh, the fact that the, uh, the adoption of a feminist foreign policy really has changed the way that they interact with uh, their uh, in, their, in the countries in which they're posted, that they now uh, understand and think about more broadly the need to engage with broader groups of people, uh, looking at gender equality as an imperative, thinking about who's at the table, and really broadening the scope of issues that are dealt with. So I think that it's, it's anecdotal. Um, I'm sure someone is probably writing a PhD dissertation as we speak on the actual impact of these policies, or, and if you're not, by the way, good idea for someone. Um, but I think what diplomats say is that, that it really has broadened the aperture for them and that it's very much now an idea of feminist foreign policy is embedded in the bureaucracy, which I think as we talk about this from a US and, and really a government perspective, critically important. Adopting a policy is one thing, but embedding that uh, into the bureaucracy and changing the norms around how, quote unquote, business is done is important. And there are lessons we can learn there um, about the need to ensure that we're, of course, thinking about who's at the table, like physically, are there women and men at the table? But, you know, people, although that is important who they are, but what are the things we can change so that there are systems in place and infrastructure in place to actually make a feminist foreign policy and a gender analysis a critical part of what we do. And um, I think that's something that as we talk about what the Hill can do, really holding agencies and you know accountable to say, how did you, how have you looked at uh, putting a gender analysis into um, the work that you do. Do you have a requirement uh, that every piece of paper that goes up through the chain, including to the president's daily brief, 
has a gender uh, analysis in it, has a section on gender that isn't just checking the box. Like this is what, you know, we need to ensure that that is happening. Um, one thing I'll say on that, and uh, this is vis-a-vis -vis USAID, um, certainly in procurement for USAID contracts was implemented uh, in during the Obama administration. And I think it's still in place. Um, you had to look at the gender impact of the proposal you were putting forward. And, you know, again, in fits and starts that was implemented, but at a certain point, um, you know, proposals were being sent back if they didn't have enough of a gender analysis of what this work would do. So I think one of the lessons to learn from Sweden, certainly, uh, and all the countries, but from Sweden particularly, is what can we do institutionally to really make change so that it's not just who's the person at the top. Because as I always say, you know, not all women are feminists and not all feminists are women. So right, we, we need to make sure we're putting in both people, but also processes that outlast all of us who go into government and, and out of government. The, the second thing I want to say about Canada and France, I'm going to lump them together a little bit because they were each presidents of the G7 respectively um, right before we're the president now, we hold the pen and it was France and Canada before us. They each used the G7 to really advance gender as, as a really integral part of the discussions of the G7 countries. That had been going on for a while. When I was at state, I, I worked on the G7 um, and really focused on including women and particularly around peace and security issues, increasing the number of women mediators and getting a commitment from G7 countries around that. But France and Canada really upped the game, right? They, they created a gender equality council. They really put forward in all of their G7 work, um, you know, the importance of, of a gender lens. So I think what we see from them is it's not just within your own government, but how you can take a feminist foreign or development policy and really engage at the multilateral level or at the global level um, to really take an, you know, to take like the G7 or the G20 or, or the UN, but, uh, and really push forward and make your um, institution, make your commitment more institutionalized as well. So I think there are lots of other things to learn, but I would point to those three things that I think we know right now. Sarah, did you want to add something as well? Sure, and I'm just going to echo a lot of what Stephanie already said is that, you know, my opinion is it's an opinion unless there's data and you can measure it, right? So the biggest thing that I saw that Canada did was really that comprehensive looking and gaining data so that you don't have unintended consequences. And, and looking across the whole spectrum, men, women, uh, different uh, sections of the population, how does trade impact these different groups? That's an important thing to base policy on. So again, if you can't, if you can't measure it, does it really, does it really happen? And to, to Stephanie's point about embedding it in. I also say I'm really impressed with Canada took a comprehensive approach. They also had a very intentional approach to increase women um, businesses and women exporters. And what they also did, I, I had a fascinating conversation with my then counterpart who also was a woman, by Hampton. And she said, yeah, I gave it to my top male trade person because I didn't want it to be the female thing. Right. And that's that she was intentional in not what she did, but how they did it. And I think that went a long way to say this isn't the female thing. This is just this is good for the economy. And we are doing this because it's good for the economy. Um, and I thought that was a very important part of how Canada positioned uh, what they did in trade. Great. Um, Wenshi, I want to turn to you um, with a 
question that was uh, pre-submitted. Um, it's from Cindy Chin, CEO of CLC Advisors. How have the Trump administration's policies towards Taiwan impacted the U.S.-China relationship? What path forward do you see, and I'll add on, how would a feminist foreign policy um, influence either the current or future administration's policy towards Taiwan? Yeah, thank you, Cindy, for that question. Um, I think, you know, she and I are both Taiwanese Americans uh, who care a lot about what's going on in Taiwan. Um, so um, I, I think definitely deserves um, everyone's attention. Um, I think historically, we always look at, you know, the US policy towards Taiwan in the context of US China, right, because of the history and, and everything else. Um, but, you know, increasingly, I think there's this um, realization recognition that, you know, treating Taiwan uh, independently, separately, um, as, you know, a, a polity, um, and, and economic, um, I, I would say, um, you know, entity differently from, you know, mainland China is essential uh, for various reasons, especially national security and values. Um, so I think one thing the Trump administration uh, has done a good job is really when it comes to support um, what Taiwan represents, which is a democratic um, success uh, in Asia, one of, one of the very first um, its record on uh, supporting um, LGBT rights, uh, gay marriage, and more recently, especially COVID, what we're seeing is really Taiwan's outstanding record uh, in con managing COVID uh, uh, situation. And so I think there are a lot of sort of, you know, good stories out of Taiwan um, that are very much I would say aligned with you know some of our traditional values, especially I would say when it comes to democracy, um, you know, uh, gender equality is also one big thing. Although I would say that really started uh, in the Obama administration, just in terms of you know using gender as a way to uh, highlight uh, Taiwan's record on gender. Um, Obviously, you know, I think this kind of improvement in terms of relationship between US and Taiwan um, irks, you know, China. So, I mean, we're seeing some reactions from China. Um, and so I think, you know, it, it's, I mean, we're in the middle of it, right? China has been using lots of threats. Um, so, you know, I, I think one thing we, we should look at is, again, applying gender perspective. Um, you know, Taiwan's first president, uh, President Tsai has really managed COVID really, really well, and she is a very, very well-respected um, president, um, you know, but in the in the world. And they just appointed the very first female representative uh, to the United States, um, Ambassador Bi Kim Shao, um, also who is now taking on um, a much more comprehensive approach in terms of Taiwan's engagement in the United States. Uh, using a lot of what they call soft power, but again, I like to use the term smart power. So sports, um, health, educational outreach, gender, um, and other things, much more than sort of the traditionally narrowly defined uh, political and, and military engagement. So just a quick follow-up question on that from um, my boss, National Committee Vice President Jan Barris. You guys are on the same wavelength. Um, she wanted you to ask about Tsai Ing-wen, how she's governed, and whether or not you think she's carried out a feminist foreign policy. You mentioned COVID, and we've seen 
um, countries and areas in which female leaders have been in charge of the COVID response, that it's, um, to put it lightly, gone better than in other places. Um, but Jan was wondering if you could perhaps touch on, upon other elements of foreign policy. You mentioned sports diplomacy and other areas of smart um, power, but if you have anything else to expand specifically about Tsai Wen, we'd love to hear it. Yeah, it's interesting because I've been uh, sort of observing President Tsai over the last, I would say, 20 years. Um, she started as a scholar and a, a key negotiator between China and Taiwan. So during her time in, you know, 20 years ago, she uh, personally was instrumental in terms of, you know, making a lot of the economic and trade ties possible um, to really improve, I would say, you know, what matters to people on a daily basis. Um, so she really understands, I would say, the economic and trade issues. Um, and I would say before she became the president, she ran for the president, you know, in 2012, uh, which wasn't successful. Um, and, you know, got to sort of watch her, she never really feels comfortable in terms of talking about, at that time, uh, her female identity, right? Because that wasn't a big issue back then. And there was also a lot of speculation about her sexual orientation, right? Because she's still not married. Um, there were always rumors about she's, you know, lesbian, etc. never had children. And even during the last presidential campaign, her not having children became an issue because some, you know, her opponents were saying, well, if she didn't have children, how would she understand, you know, how to raise a family, you know, what policies matter to family, etc. Um, so I, I would say her realization of a more uh, gender and women um, really was learned. But what you're noticing is that throughout the years, and she's become so much more confident, especially during the second term, you can notice um, in terms of, you know, just her being comfortable with who she is um, and really leads, especially during COVID, I would say very deferential to health experts, um, you know, and, and basically, you know, obviously it was very competent uh, health officials in the government, uh, including former vice president, et cetera, and the current vice president, also a doctor. So, you know, I, I would say she's very comfortable in her skin in terms of who she is. Um, that may be it. I mean, she's secure about who she is and, and acknowledges and recognizes, you know, what she can do and she cannot do. Um, and what her party actually represents um, is more like, you know, in some way, not entirely, but value-wise, more like the Democratic Party in the United States because they're more left-leaning. Um, they care more about, for example, the farmers, you know, um, a lot of the workers and, um it is less interested in big businesses. Um, so, you know, that's some just interesting observation of, you know, how she has changed over the years. Great, that's really interesting. Thank you for that. Um, we have another question that I'm gonna pose to all of you. Um, it's from Teresa Poor, Pure, sorry if I'm messing up your last name, from Oxfam America. She says, in, this, in his agenda for women, Biden has pledged to fully implement the Women, Peace and Security Act and to strive for gender parity in his national security and foreign policy appointments. Beyond these pledges, what else should a President Biden do to implement a feminist foreign policy, especially with regard to the US-China relationship? Any takers for that one? Well, I'll, I'll start um, just more broadly on feminist foreign policy. And I think at the end, we're gonna talk specifically as well about some things that 
Congress, you know, legislative, the legislative branch can do. I mean, certainly I would say, um, just so people know that Women, Peace and Security Act was signed into law in 2017 after being, uh, you know, many, many years in the making in, in Congress, but was signed into law um, by President Trump in 2017. And uh, each of the main agencies has done an implementation plan. Um, they came out earlier this year. Um, so I think, yes, uh, uh, Vice President Biden, candidate Biden has said he would implement the WPS Act. And I think it's really important to say what is, you know, what other things can he do, but what does that mean? I mean, one certainly thing, which is diversification of who's in office, right? Making sure that there are equal numbers of uh, men and women, um, diverse in other ways as well, uh, at all levels of foreign policy, national security, and frankly, domestic appointments, right? This is a time where I think we see also the importance of understanding that foreign and domestic policy are much more inextricably intertwined than ever before. I will note just two words, COVID-19, right? I mean, we are living in a world where what happens around the world matters here uh, very starkly to people. And I would say that's also just as an aside, one of the things that we think about as we think about feminist foreign policy is actually broadening the issues that get seen as foreign policy issues. Um, historically, um, you know, I think we have this sense of what that is, government to government discussions about high important issues of, uh, you know, whatever it is about between a country's bilateral relationship. But I think now we're seeing things like global health are huge, huge foreign policy issues, climate change, huge things that I think before maybe kind of at the edges people were thinking were important to foreign policy and national security. Now it's very obvious. So I think diversifying representation, really broadening the set of issues, seeing trade and economic issues for what as well as foreign policy and national security issues, labor rights issues, agriculture issues. I mean, you know, there are a multitude of ways that the US government engages with governments and people overseas, and we need to think about those in a holistic way. So that's another thing I think that an, uh, the Biden administration or any administration could, could and should do is really be a much more broad, have a more broad spectrum about of the issues that comprise foreign policy and national security. Um, I'll just say two other things. Um, obviously, I think ensuring that in, we get input from those who are affected by our foreign policy decisions in a much more structured way. Um, to me, and you know, from working at the State Department, but just broadly, I think it's important for us to understand that we need to, you know, as diplomats and uh, those who give advice to foreign policy decision makers, that we need to have input from those who are actually affected on the ground. It's easy to say sitting in the Capitol here or even in the Capitol, you know, when you're in a country, I served in the embassy in Afghanistan. Thank you to some of my former US Embassy Kabul colleagues who've gotten on the call. But you know, you learn a lot there, but you learn a lot when you go out and talk to people, like not outside the embassy walls, outside the Capitol. Um, really ensuring that there are mechanisms in place for that. So I think I would just end by saying on this, this sort of note that it's, it's about not just relying on people who are committed to do that because they think it makes their, them better diplomats or better um, policymakers, but institutionalizing them, figuring out ways to change the structure and the system so that everybody has to 
you know, do a gender analysis, think about who's impacted, make sure there are the right people at the table and broaden our, our view of what we need to look at so that we are making decisions that make all of us more safe and secure um, and more prosperous. Sarah or Wen Chi, anything to add? No, I, I think I covered it in my remarks about some specific recommendations on you could do public procurement, encouraging women on boards. Um, there are there are sort of micro policies that you could do in the in the trade vertical that that could enhance a, a feminist trade policy. Uh, but I think Stephanie called them out uh, pretty broad. That first and foremost, you've got to put an emphasis on knowing the data and knowing what's currently taking place. And I would say what Stephanie said about inclusion also should be extended to domestic as well, like get outside of Washington. Agreed. We've gotten a couple of questions um, about what's going on in Xinjiang. And I know when she, you briefly touched upon this in your remarks, but um, a couple of people have asked or stated this, the Chinese government has purportedly used forced sterilization in Xinjiang as a means of controlling and subduing the Uyghur population. Please speak a little bit more about that, as well as the internment camp tactics using the lens of a feminist foreign policy. Would using a feminist foreign policy lens change the way in which um, the US government has approached what's going on in Xinjiang? Yeah, I think people have seen the news stories coming out, just, you know, it's been going on for years. So obviously, you know, it's not just sort of the forced sterilization. Um, I still remember when I actually, you know, Going home in terms of the for the congressional staffers when I was working at the Congressional Executive Commission on China, Xinjiang um, at that time, especially the Chinese government's treatment to ethnic minorities in general, um, came up as an issue. And at that time, we also noticed forced labor as an issue. For example, using the workers there to pick uh, cotton, but it really is slave labor issue. So um, it had been featured. Um, you know, in our annual trafficking in persons report, um, even, you know, just, a, you know, 10, 10, more than 10 years ago, it's been, you know, so it's not news in the human rights world. I think um, what we're probably noticing more is sort of a more comprehensive kind of, um, you know, control of the ethnic minority um, by the Chinese government. And what, what you would notice is what they are doing now in Xinjiang um, is essentially copying what they did in Tibet. Um, and actually the current, um, I would say the, the political leader in Xinjiang came from Tibet. Um, so it, it's, it's a very sad story. Um, and, you know, I, you know, I think, it's, you know, the US government has been critical. I haven't seen um, sort of the women's office or, you know, other ones, you know, I think the question is what tools can we use are the other than criticizing, right? This is when, um, you know, are we getting allies from around the world? Are we, you know, working with the UN system, for example, um, to have something that's more than just sort of, this is US criticism of China. Um, and, and I do want to acknowledge that, you know, various European governments have come out um, and Muslim majority countries have um, come out to criticize um, this just um, cruel and, and horrendous um, practice and policy um, in Xinjiang against Uyghurs. We have a follow-up question um, from another National Committee colleague, um, Margot Landman, 
Following up on Stephanie's comments about getting feedback from those affected by US policy um, in the China context, um, where American diplomats access to ordinary Chinese people is often limited. How would you recommend institutionalizing um, getting that input? And I think Sarah, you probably have some thoughts about this from your time on the ground as well. Sure, I mean, I, I think Margaret's absolutely right. You have to institutionalize this. The easiest way, if you want to get the embassy to report something, is make it a, require, a reporting requirement, right? Stick it on a 301 report, stick it on an NTE report, stick it on any, there's any number of ways. Uh, but to Margaret's point of how do you do it when there is limits and there's now new limits, right? Um, in terms of getting out and interacting. Um, that does become more difficult, but I would say there's this one thing called WeChat and social media, where how do we use technology to start trying to get input on what's going on? And I don't know if we've done as much in the government as the private sector has on really using that um, tools and mechanisms as another way to augment it. I think when she's got some experience, so I'm gonna punt it over to her for, to follow up. Uh, on that one, but but Mario, it's an excellent question because if you don't report it, if you don't institutionalize it, it's a blip. But I do think what the government, U.S. government, is good at is when you get something into an annual report that goes to Congress, yes. it becomes institutionalized. Uh, thanks, Sarah, for throwing that uh, question to me. Um, I, you know, I think we're in this hot water now uh, between U.S. and China when it comes to sort of technology competition, right? I don't want to use. Cold War or any other, you know, terms yet to frame it, although it does feel that way. Um, I think fundamentally it comes down to uh, competition for leadership and for global dominance. Um, what, you know, the U.S. has realized is just how competitive China has been in a relatively short amount of time. Um, and, you know, and, and if you want to have economic dominance, you know, having the most advanced, um, you know, technologies, whether it's AI, 5G, um, and, and bio, and, you know, any kind um, is essential, right? So I think that's a huge question for, you know, for our U.S. government in terms of how, how do we, you know, make our competitiveness um, strong and and the approach in appearance that you know the US government currently is taking now is uh, to make sure that you know there is a level playing field I think there is this feeling and Sarah you would know much better um, that you know the US access US business access to the Chinese market um, is not entirely um, fair and so we're not really comp competing um, on the same level. I think that's fundamentally what they're trying to address. There are many other political issues obviously you know added to the play and um, there's also domestic politics you know is in the election year. So it's just it's just so complicated <laughs> right now. It's really hard to sort of um, and, and, and you know dice and, and, and see anything clearly right now. But one thing I want to come back to our competitiveness issue and drive home because ultimately, you know, a stronger United States, uh, if we have a stronger economy, a healthier and educated population, um, that's when you can have a strong foreign policy. And I think. Um, you know, foreign policy in some, especially in any democracy, is an extension of um, our domestic priorities. And um, I think what we're seeing is that we haven't invested enough domestically. 
um, and, and I want to use one example um, just to show how everything is connected. So when I was uh, uh, working for, you know, one of the top investment banks um, in the world, um, living in Beijing, um, we already noticed sort of, you know, the U.S. business is less competitive. Obviously there are restrictions. That's one sort of regulatory level kind of um, issue we need to address. But there's also this fundamental lack of understanding of local markets. And um, for especially big businesses, and, and I'm only using you know, my former employer as an example, because what we noticed was the bankers, the big shop bankers, uh, most of them are men and they like to chase deals that are, you know, state-owned enterprises, the big ones, right? They're very also traditional because that's what they're used to um, in terms of, you know, big money, quick money. Um, and then I noticed that female partners, they started paying attention to the new economy type of businesses. Um, so Alibaba, for example, the very first uh, investor from Goldman Sachs was actually a, a woman who um, recognized this e-commerce is going to be the future. And so she was the one that led the company to invest in Alibaba. Um, and then later on, you know, when I, I remember having conversation with a female partner um, and she was saying, look, health and education will be the most profitable businesses. Um, because that's the future. And so that's when we should pay our attention to and chase after all these businesses. But at that time, you know, that wasn't really on most of the male bankers radar because they're still chasing after the already established big ones and they tend to be state owned and they tend to be coals, you know, the construction and the, and the big ones. And so I think you can see just how female and male perspectives is played into this, right? Because our female partners, she has a family, she cares about her children, she cares about her parents' health, and that's how she looks at um, how to pick businesses. Mm -hmm. And so fast forward, you know, just a few years later, I mean, I think we can see that, you know, a lot of US banks, you know, even though we have the licenses to do, wholly owned business now in mainland China, but I think, you know, we are losing the edge, um, I, I have to say, and it's across the board. Um, so, you know, that's just one example how, you know, this truly matters um, in terms of your competitiveness, you know, how you access a market, and ultimately, you know, it is, it comes down to how, how we understand what kind of information are we gathering. Great. Um, we're almost out of time. So I want to quickly turn back to Stephanie, who is going to give us a few takeaways, practical steps um, for members of Congress and staff and anyone else who works in foreign policy in a professional capacity um, can take to implement a feminist foreign policy. Great. Well, I have, I have like five or six things, so I'm going to run through them. I would say for anybody on this call in your work, um, always make sure you are looking for asking and getting data disaggregated by sex, right? So you see the differential impact. You can also look for data disaggregated on a number of other things, but for sure, 
I can't tell you the number of times I've asked people like, how many women, you know, uh, own businesses? How many women go to school? How many women are, you know, impacted by climate change or move because of that? And there is no data. How many women are, you know, are you thinking about reaching through this outreach program? No. So just ask for sex disaggregated data, everybody. That's one thing that's really important and it can really inform policy no matter where and what. So I'll start with that. Um, but specifically to this set of issues and for Hill staff, I mean, I think there are several things that are very important. Um, sponsoring uh, resolutions and legislation around this issue. I'm just gonna have a few examples of things I know that are happening right now. I happen to know that Representative Speer has a resolution uh, supporting feminist foreign policy. I think it's still open for co-sponsors. I know there are laws, uh, act, legislation that's been introduced, for example, around how to reform the State Department, make sure that there's a more diverse group of people who work there. Uh, so lots of different uh, pieces of legislation that get at parts of feminist foreign policy, diversification of staff being really the one that's the most focused on right now in terms of what's happening legislatively. Um, secondly, um, or thirdly, I guess, uh, make sure when you're looking at the experts you call to testify before a committee or a subcommittee or that you reach out to to do so um, make sure that's a balanced group of people um, uh, susan markham and i recently wrote an article in the hill uh, that talks about the numbers and it's you know on the senate side right now about 30 percent of witnesses are women be before the senate foreign relations committee on the house side it's about 40 percent in front of hvac um, those numbers are not bad, but they could be better. And we want to make sure that women are experts called on every issue, not just on the soft issues, not just on women's issues, but on nuclear nonproliferation, on issues of uh, defense spending. There are women experts out there on every single one of those issues. And so um, I think, think about who you call. Um, that's really important. It, it really sends a signal. It also helps those women's careers. And that means that they'll probably uh, be able to move through their careers in a much accelerated way. Uh, I would also say, um, ask questions at hearings, in meetings, um, in, in your interactions with government, you know, with executive branch officials. Again, about gender analysis, sex disaggregated data. Have you looked at how this, what the differential impact is on people? Um, depending on their sex, their race, their age, what, whatever the analytics are, but ask those questions because as, someone who is, I worked on the Hill and I worked in, an, in an, obviously the State Department. Um, when you're on the side of the State Department have to answer those questions, you're sort of annoyed, but that is after all the job of the Hill is to make us you know, accountable and I guess somewhat annoyed by having to be accountable for that. Um, and then you know, just as a, another sort of subtopic of that is think about whether as you're developing legislation, you can embed a requirement for gender analysis into that or for gender policy. Um, obviously, several agencies have gender policies, USAID, the State Department, the Millennium Challenge Corporation. Um, but think about, are there ways to deepen that, uh, broaden that uh, across agencies? Are there ways to hold people accountable, whether they're implementing the actual policy that exists uh, as they're revising policies? Are they looking at the best practices? So I think there are lots of things that, as uh, part of oversight capacity, uh, Hill offices can do. And um, if there are further questions, of course, 
I'm happy to have you reach out to me via the National Committee and um, looking it have, help you look at ways to really um, make small changes seemingly, but that can have a really big impact. Wonderful. Um, thank you, Stephanie, Sarah, and Wen Chi for speaking to us today. We're out of time. We've gone a little bit over. Um, and th many thanks to everyone for joining. We know you're busy and we appreciate your time. For the congressional staffers on the call, we hope you'll be back with us next month for our next briefing. And for everyone, we hope you will join us for future National Committee programs. And you, we invite you to um, go on our website and you can subscribe to our events distribution. Um, a video for this program will be available and posted to our website. So please check back in the next week or so. And thank you again, everyone, for spending now close to 80 minutes with us. Uh, we hope you have a lovely weekend and we hope to see you again soon on Zoom. Bye, everyone, and thank you. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.